We interrupt this podcast with breaking news. According to Neil Mitchell of 3AW, Benjamin Castle is out as co-host of Americans Watching the Footy. Management is meeting with Alistair Clarkson today, hoping to stop him before he signs on with North Melbourne. Hold on, I'm I'm receiving a call. What's that? So, uh, he's not fired? Hey, what's up? Uh, I guess this means no meeting with Clarko then? What are you talking about? I just opened Twitter and saw everything. Okay then, business as usual. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack, and here he comes! Ryan! Knight plays on, and misses. Got to go to big guy, Dak! Dak, 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 Dak! Dak nailed three! Oh, who else? McDonald! From inside the centre square, boys kick the goal! Yeah, welcome to episode 55 of Americans Watching the Footy, everyone. I'm Benjamin Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California. And I'm Ethan Castle, coming to you from the Cincinnati suburb of Erlanger, Kentucky. And yeah, much to our dismay, Benjamin has not been fired. He is still here. In fact, like Ken Hinckley, I'm contracted through at least 2023. It's been a wild few hours of coaching news. At first, it sounded like Ben Rutten had been fired. Then Seven backtracked on that, and people from Essendon came out and said, no, he's still here, he's still coaching this week. Their president, Paul Brasher, is quitting, though. That is correct. He was expected to be leaving. His term on the board expires in the winter, and so I think he's just doing this for a smoother transition. And the new president, David Barham, is in favor of an external review, so it's not the truck's job is safe. It's just that he hasn't been sacked yet. As of now, he is still Essendon's coach. Also in the news on the coaching front, it sounds more and more like Alistair Clarkson will end up at North, but nothing's official yet there. You already mentioned the Ken Hinckley news, and Adam Uze is now the clubhouse leader for the GWS job. I think we've both said that he's definitely deserving of that opportunity, and if that does happen, seems like a good hire for the Giants. Not, you know, the... Oh my god, amazing hire, but also not a super weird, ballsy hire. Just kind of like a logical one. Why do I feel like they're just going to completely mess things up and take Hinkley if he ends up getting fired? It sounds more and more like Hinkley's job is safe for now, although... Uh, we'll see after Showdown 52. Never underestimate the power of a rivalry loss. That said, we'll be able to go on about teams like that later. Right now, we've got to talk about games that actually impact the finals hunt. And the first two of the round definitely did. It was a strange round 22. I got to say, it was not the most visually appealing round. There were stretches that were just not well-played football. I'm not sure. Are you sort of expecting that at some point of the year? Like the quality of the actual gameplay maybe peaking in the middle? You'd think that, but also just the wear and tear of the game, injuries piling up, whether or not they're reported. No. 
you would think it would get better as the year went on. I can understand why there could be a bit of a drop-off heading into finals, but hopefully the bye is going to allow those teams to freshen up enough. At the same time, conditions also didn't do everyone too many favors this round. Other than the game in Sydney, rain was in forecasts at the very least within a couple hours of games to the point where it impacted playing conditions some. But I don't think that was really why some of these games were sloppy. And though they weren't the cleanest games, there was no shortage of entertainment and drama. And as I've said, I wanted drama. We got drama. None of that drama involved Geelong, who have already locked up the minor premiership. We get to watch everyone else fight it out. I get to sit back and enjoy while the peasants beneath me fight for scraps. You know, Geelong are in an interesting position where if they rest a bunch of top guys, then if they win their qualifying final, then a lot of their guys would have played a single game in five weeks. But we'll talk more about that definitely in our next episode, our round 23 preview. And we're going to transition now to talking about just a weird Friday night affair where a good second quarter for the Brisbane Lions, despite inaccuracy in front of goal, made me think the game was out of reach. And then it certainly wasn't because the Saints did a third quarter. Yeah, that kind of gone away for a bit and certainly resurfaced this round. But I think I kind of got an introduction to why the Saints are what they are, why they're associated with a history of losing and tragedy and painful defeats because they had every chance to win this game, especially after a 35 to 8 third quarter. And Max King just couldn't find the target. The Lions ended up taking back the lead on a couple of big Cam Rayner goals. He got two in 18 seconds of clock time and just a constant chain of misses by the Saints who kicked five behinds without a goal for the fourth quarter, basically ended their season. Yes, they are mathematically still alive, but the odds are highly unlikely. St. Kilda 9-12-66, defeated by Brisbane 12-9-81. But just the complete up and down nature of this game means that the scoreline tells very little of the story. The score worm, of course, tells a lot more. That is one of our favorite little things about the footy broadcast. And I don't know why we don't see it in sports like basketball here in the United States. Yeah, you kind of just see that climbing score chart instead of one that shows the margin. And... I also just think the term scoreworm is really silly and fun. A lot of our love for the sport grew out of things about it that we thought were silly and fun. So that makes sense. Anyway, you know, even though the Lions won this game, kept their top four hopes alive, they are one of four teams at 15 wins, a 15-6 and six record, 60 points, however you want to call it. They currently sit third out of that group, Collingwood with a, as a distant fourth. Oh, yeah, and they have a home game next week. Yeah, the Lions host Melbourne, winner of that gets a top four spot. Loser may drop all the way to sixth. Never underestimate the chaos that another draw could put into things. But obviously the odds of that just mathematically are slim. But I've thought at times this year the Lions look like a team that could have what it takes. And if they didn't have such a bad track record in finals, I would really be betting on them. But then they do shit like this where they just come completely unhinged. I think unhinged might be a more accurate hashtag for them than uncaged because when shit goes wrong for them, they just lose all composure. The most concerning thing out of all this for Brisbane is that this is now the third time in as many weeks that they've just lost composure like this at some point in the second half for an extended period. 
and they should count themselves lucky that it's only cost themselves the Richmond game. They built up enough of a lead against Carlton to avoid disaster. They had to come back in the fourth quarter for this one, but that sort of loss of anything resembling, you know, good controlled football for that long, that's not anything a championship caliber team does. As much as I like this Brisbane team and as much as I like their talent, there are times when there's just no discipline. And it's funny because you don't expect that of such a well-coached, well-drilled team. But I have a hypothesis for this. Maybe it kind of reflects on Dane Zorko. You know, I like Zorko as a player. I think he's probably a really fun captain because he's fiery. But I don't know if he's sort of that guy who can kind of make sure you don't get too high or too low. He's kind of an instigator at times, gets under opponent's skin. That could be a great quality. But I think for a captain, you really want a guy who's, you know, composed, relaxed, you know, gives all the cliches, the never get too high, never get too low stuff. And he certainly does not fit that. Gotta give 100% plays the team. Those wise words from by far the best football player in Stanford history, the great Osmataz Buckshank. <laughs> Go Bears, by the way. I guess the biggest positive I can take away from Brisbane in this game is that I've been looking for a guy that can single-handedly will them over the line at times. I put a team in my fucking bag, though. And Cam Rander certainly looks like he can be that guy. Maybe a combination of him and Zach Bailey could be the sort of spark plugs they need in September if they keep themselves close through three quarters, which they're certainly capable of doing, but they can lose their composure so quickly. And just a run of a couple goals may be enough to jar them to the point where they're going to need to take 10, 15 minutes to be thinking and moving the right way again. It's the way in which they come unglued that's so strange to me, where it's, you know, giving away free kicks and stuff after a goal, the body language. You wouldn't expect that out of a good, disciplined veteran team. And even though they won this game and Rainer's fourth quarter performance was outstanding, I still leave this game thinking more about what happened in the third and how that's going to bode for the Lions come finals. Just to shed light on a couple good performances for St. Kilda, because they should be given some respect for the way they came along in the second half, even though their second quarter was so poor. Marcus Windhager did a very good job on Lockie Neal. Had more touches than him, in fact. Rowan Marshall did everything he could, and Mason Wood left everything he had out on the Marvel Stadium Oval. I think I had circled him as one of the guys who didn't impact the loss to Geelong anywhere near as much as I thought he would, even though his numbers were decent, and he was much better in this game. But inaccuracy in that fourth quarter really killed the Saints, and yet another game where when he misses his first kick... Everything just falls apart for Max King, and it's so clearly mental rather than physical. Yes, there's some concerns from a couple of commentators about his kicking style, you know, where he's sort of a bit more passive physically, and it took him a while to really get involved with the game. It wasn't really until late in the third quarter where he really got going, and then he missed from 29, he missed from 31, and... It was just, you could see it all unraveling where the Saints had this opportunity not just to get back in this game, but win it. And even when they had gone up by five, even with how unhinged the Lions looked, you still never felt like the Saints were really going to win this game. And it's just kind of consistent with their history as a club. And I feel bad for them. They're likable. They don't bother me at all. 
I was trying to think of like an American comparison and I don't really think any of the lesser NFL franchises really fits them. I'd say the Cleveland Indians now Guardians is actually the best comparison for St. Kilda. For some reason, I'm thinking of a college football comparison like maybe a Purdue or an Oregon State. When I think of like cursed college football teams, I think more of like Oklahoma State or Arkansas. With how Oklahoma State made a push for a national championship about a decade ago, I can actually see that. But yes, at this point, the Saints do still have mathematical finals hopes. But not only would they have to win, they would need the Blues to lose, and they'd have to make up a 9% gap there. And they also have an 8% deficit against the Bulldogs, who they also trail. So their season's pretty much done. I had said for a while it was already done. It's now just about official, and it's just it happened in such painful fashion that I really feel sorry for them. I don't think they would beat Sydney this week, even if their season was still really alive, but... I feel bad. I really do. This is a team that I thought was going to suck this year, got off to a nice start, and injuries certainly took a pretty significant toll on them. And then they just, for a couple months, really, since they had beaten Geelong, this was probably the first time since then they really turned it on in the third quarter. Notable stat lines for the Lions because we like the numbers, and I don't know how many of you guys do fantasy stuff. We're not into fantasy for AFL. I actually find it hard to get into fantasy sports in the first place because it means I'm cheering for players for whom I wouldn't normally cheer. The only fantasy sport I do is fantasy baseball. I finally found a league a few years ago with A, it's with people I know, B, the format, you actually have to build a realistically strong team, and C, it's just fun to be able to do that and actually have some skill needed instead of just luck and very basic knowledge of the game. And D, the shit talking with friends is really fun. But here are the most important stat lines for the Brisbane Lions. Daniel Rich, 26 disposals, 7 intercepts, 568 meters gained. That typical mover out of halfback, as we've come to expect he is. Also, Brian Taylor compared him to a wombat because of his body type. That was hilarious and surprisingly on point. Wow. Hugh McCluggage kicking 1-1, 24 disposals, 10 score involvements. People still rag on him a lot for his inaccuracy in front of goal. He's somewhat begun to turn that around, and also his general impact makes up for that a lot of the time. Dane Zorko, a player whose merit as a leader you've questioned, but definitely impactful in his role. Midfield, halfback, wherever he's needed. 22 touches and gaining 465 meters. I'm not questioning his ability as a player. I'm just questioning if... His sort of attitude is what you need out of a captain. And that's what I mean by as a leader. But the Lions' savior again was Cam Rayner, who kicked four straight from 18 touches. We were really excited by what we saw of him in 2020. He has surpassed that now, and it's only getting more and more fun to see him continue to develop. On the same side, Seb Ross, I said he'd bounce back and he did. 32 disposals, 10 score involvement, 7 clearances. Brad Croucher behind, 25 disposals, 8 clearances, 8 tackles. And a one-week suspension. He should have gotten more. Yes, he should have, and watch him take it to the appeals board and win. He had a very late bump to the head of Darcy Gardner after Gardner and the ball had already gone out of bounds. It was somehow ruled careless rather than intentional conduct. Yeah, that's the sort of play that the MRO needs to be working on erasing from the game. 
So he will not play against the Swans in the season finale. Jack Sinclair, 25 disposals, 7 intercepts, 511 meters gained. But he has a challenger now for nastiest hair in the league, which we'll get to in the very next game, actually. Callum Wilkie, 22 disposals and 11 marks. Marcus Windhager behind, 21 disposals, 7 marks, and he limited Lockie Neal to 16 touches. Rowan Marshall, 20 disposals and 7 clearances. Mason Wood kicked 4 straight on 15 disposals. Ben Patton and Jack Steele, each with seven tackles. The one team stat that really stands out, not only did the Saints kick poorly, they were inefficient. Inside 50, they were at just 40% compared to Brisbane's 55.1. Seems like a lot of teams go around the mid to high 40s in terms of disposal efficiency. Inside 50, getting into the 50s, you're doing something really right. 55, excellent. 40 means that you are missing a lot of chances that other teams are getting. And uh, sounds about right with what we saw from the Saints and their kicking inaccuracy, not only from Max King. One other player that I do want to highlight in this one that didn't show up in a massive way on the stat sheet, but a player I really enjoyed watching this back half of the year is Desiah Wagadine Miller, who enabled a lot of St. Kilda's scoring in the third quarter with the little things he did. He had been omitted a few times recently. Nice to see him back in there and making a case to be a significant part of the Saints foundation for years to come. When the Western Bulldogs and the Greater Western Sydney Giants first met back in round 14, it was an absolute slugfest. And I thought that we were going to see a similar game to some extent with the concerns I had about both teams' defenses. Instead, teams just couldn't find avenues toward goal. And it ended up being a much more boring game than either of us expected. This was the most boring close game I have ever watched. You know, I talked about how the Giants haven't played in close games and they did change that. That was nice. But holy shit, this game was boring. I think Kent Brockman can actually take us through what the first few minutes of this game were like. Halfback passes to the center. Back to the wing. Back to the center. Center holds it. Holds it. Holds it. Worst of all, this was done without Ariaga and Ariaga 2, and there was no paella man walking through the stands serving up food. How dare you forget about Ariaga, Ruglia, and Pisosa as well? They didn't even sign autographs after the match. Oh, come on. What a ripoff. But yeah, this game sucked. <laughs> I'll just be straight up with it. This game sucked. I love your bluntness, Ethan. If you remember a few years ago when the NHL was acquainted with Trappa Bay, the Tampa Bay Lightning putting on this 1-3-1 trap that just completely sucked the life out of games. This was before the Lightning became the powerhouse we know now, by the way. The first few minutes were kind of like that. It's like they're just standing there kicking the ball to each other. Maybe... The Giants just wanted to pile up as many marks and disposals as they could for fantasy stats. And I will say they did that successfully. But this was such a dull game. It was hard for me to take anything away from it. The third quarter got somewhat compelling. Bulldogs went into halftime up 25-21. Giants got the first two goals of the third. Tom Green had a great setup to Jake Steen, apparently, not Stein. He is in the running with Jack Sinclair for nastiest hair in the league. Right away, though, the Bulldogs flipped the switch, 
Aaron Naughton leaked out behind the defense. His kick turned out to hit the post on review, but it signaled a shift. Not long after, Tim English got a goal off a nice little tap from Lockie McNeil. Bailey Williams had a nice little juke to get free from Stephen Canelio for another. Then a really good handball chain off a center clearance led to a Bailey Smith goal from 51. Look out if he's kicking accurately. Bailey Williams scored shortly after. The lead was up to 15, but the Giants came back, went ahead again by the end of the quarter with goals by Nick Haynes, Jesse Hogan, and Lockie Keefe. But the Giants were held to just three points in the fourth. The Bulldogs kicked the only goal of the final term and kicked six behinds as well. That go-ahead goal coming from Jamari Ugelhagen with 9.51 left. Dogs also hit a couple of posts, but even though they never led by more than five points in that final sequence, the Giants never really mounted a serious chance. They only got inside 50 a couple times. Um, There was one where Jesse Hogan could have tried a really long shot, and I get that he went short, but his shorter kick was contested immediately and didn't really create anything. Ryan Gardner had a nice play to punch away a long Lockie Whitfield entry kick, and then a... Bailey Dale intercept with 50 seconds left, all but put the game to bed. Final score, Bulldogs 9-8-62, Giants 8-9-57. For a game with a lot riding on the line that was close the entire way, this was just not a fun watch. The biggest thing that I took out of the game was the value of Bailey Dale. I'd been focusing on the other Baileys on the Bulldogs. Smith, for a number of reasons, Williams, just because he had had a couple games that was a player that had intrigued me for a reasonable amount of time, but I'm starting to understand why Dale is considered to be a guy that needs tagging because he's so much of an enabler for the bigger names that the Bulldogs have. It's amazing to think that he's kind of an under-the-radar guy for them, but when you have as crowded a midfield as they do, and you already have Bonapelli taking a lot of time at full forward, Dale kind of slips through the cracks sometimes, especially for us newer fans. This was the sort of game you would have thought it was played in really terrible conditions. No, it was under a roof on a really nice playing surface. I will say, credit to the Giants for A, playing in a close game, B, being able to play in a lower-scoring game, because my thought was a slower, lower-scoring game wouldn't work well for them, because anytime the opposition got inside 50, they'd still be able to score, and it's just instead of losing 120 to 100, they lose like 70 to 50. They managed to avoid that. They've shown some growth defensively. Nick Haynes had a good game. Sam Taylor wasn't alone back there. They utilized Callum Brown properly. And luckily, you're in game number three, looks so much more in sync than he did in game number one. And it's good that he's been able to debut and get comfortable on a team that's not in contention because after his performance in his first game, it's the sort of thing that if your team was competing for a final spot, you'd be getting omitted. You're on a less successful team. You're able to just go out there and play and work through it. And that's good. On the Bulldog side, there weren't a lot of guys I was impressed with. Bailey Dale did have a good game, but... I was actually really impressed with Ryan Gardner, who I think at times this year has been a huge liability. When he's good, the Bulldogs' defense is really, really solid and really, really deep. Now, Benjamin, I have a question for you. Were you ever into the A Series of Unfortunate Events books? Not to the extent that you were, I'll say. I don't know if it had the cultural impact in Australia like it did here. Maybe it was also... West Coast-based authors spent a lot of time in the Bay Area, but it definitely had some, like, national impact. It was kind of like the number two thing that 
people in my age group read past Harry Potter. And the books are really interesting because Lemony Snicket, the plot itself would actually be pretty brief. He just would spend most of the book going on tangents, which was really fun. And one tangent in particular that I remember was him talking about how good Indian food is one of the best things in the world and bad Indian food is one of the worst things in the world. And the gap between the two is enormous. And I think the same can be said for Ryan Gardner and his value to the Bulldogs. Therefore, from now on, I would like to introduce him as Ryan Tikka Masala Gardner. <laughs> what? <laughs> Um, I can already hear Oberlin students getting mad at us. Yes, there is a college, Oberlin College in Ohio, known for its arts and music program, where they had students calling out General So's chicken for cultural appropriation. I shit you not. So come at us. I'd love to get in a fight with some Oberlin students. You could also make the argument about Thai food or Chinese food, where the difference between good and bad is so huge, but... I'm going to stick with Indian food because it was Lemony Snicket's observation, and I think generally he's a very smart man. So yes, Ryan Tikka Masala Gardner. And Overloom students, if you have a problem with me, come see me. Stats of note for the Western Bulldogs. Busy day for the usual suspects in the midfield. Jack McRae's 31 disposals leading the way there. Bailey Dale, Josh Dunkley, and Bailey Smith, all with 26 disposals. Dale and Smith added goals. Dunkley with six tackles. Dale with seven intercepts, seven marks, and seven score involvements. Again, he was that do-it-all enabler for the dogs in this one. Marcus Bonapelli, 0-2 from 26 disposals. A couple busy defenders as well. Caleb Daniel, 29 disposals, eight intercepts, seven marks, and gained 548 meters. Ed Richards and his awesome red hair, 24 disposals, nine intercepts, and 574 meters. He's not a player I had thought much of. Going into this season, I mean, our focus on the Bulldogs had definitely always been with their forward two-thirds, but I'm glad that we've spent more time looking at Richard's game in particular this season. We already knew about Caleb Daniel. Alex Keith doesn't stand out as much to me a lot of the time, but Richard is someone who's definitely been a defensive barometer for the Dogs a lot of this season. For the Giants, Josh Kelly, 35 disposals, 12 marks, 600 meters. Steven Canelio, a behind, 31 disposals, 8 marks. Harry Himmelberg, 30 disposals, 12 marks, 504 meters gained. Callan Ward, a goal, 29 disposals, 494 meters. Lockie Whitfield, 29 disposals, 13 marks. Nick Haynes, one of his better games, a goal, 25 disposals, 15 marks, 575 meters. Harry Perryman, 23 disposals and 14 tackles. Because of the way the Giants played, a lot of guys with big mark numbers, even if they didn't do much else. Jesse Hogan, who I thought played pretty well, 11 marks. Adam Kennedy with nine, Callum Brown and Jake Riccardi each with eight. But the Giants were just at 33.3% efficiency inside 50. The Bulldogs, below average, but better at 41.7. If you just looked at the stats for this game, you would assume it was played in pretty shitty weather. I mean, this felt like a Cairns game. It's funny, the game I watched was important but boring. The one you watched meant basically nothing, but judging by everything you've said, was actually really entertaining. And considering that it's not significant to the finals picture, I might just bookmark this as a game to watch when I have some downtime during the offseason because it can 
probably tell you more in context to where these teams will be heading into next season and where individual performers are. But the second meeting of the year between Adelaide and North Melbourne was actually a pretty good ballgame. Yeah, I didn't necessarily expect it after Adelaide just missed out on doubling up the Kangaroos out at Bluntstone Arena the first time they met. But North were clearly lifted by the presence of a couple players that weren't there this past round. Ben McKay came back in, which very much surprised me considering he had to be at the G later that day. But more importantly, another Ben came back. Ben Cunnington playing his first game of the year, his first game since late last season. After finishing his chemo for testicular cancer, coming back through the VFL, that enough was reason for me to watch this game to see the impact he had. He managed to have a couple good setups, get involved in the ways that he had done beforehand. And that was great to see. But I was really frustrated a lot by North in this one because you can tell how they can work well. They had clearance success stemming from strong ruck work from Todd Goldstein and more and more so from Callum Coleman Jones as well. They're in position to have good depth there as well. When you consider the Tristan Jerry's been out for the last couple months. And then they were running in the corridor from half back decently well also, but they seemed to only be building up really one way, and their last kiss continued to let them down somewhat. Having said that, Luke Davies-Uniac enabled a lot of great things. Their center clearance dominance meant they got a lot more chances forward, and they made good on some of those. North were down 10 after one, and I was really worried for them because Adelaide had 11 scoring shots in the first quarter. They only kicked 4-7, though. They were getting forward numbers really easily. It was easy for North to get caught in transition. But North came back strongly in the second. They led by 8 at halftime. It was 10-10-70 each in the third quarter. And I was really excited for potentially a really solid conclusion to this one. But I ended up just being wowed by a lot of Adelaide's young talent, as I had been in the first quarter somewhat. In the fourth quarter, as the Crows brought it home, they ended up winning 15-13-103 to North 10-14-74, North only managing four behinds in the final term, but the positives in this game for Adelaide mostly came from their younger pieces. Darcy Fogarty with another excellent game, he kicked 4-1, the one miss he had was a relatively difficult snap. He is one of the purest kicks in the game, and as he keeps getting the ball more and more as the Crows shift toward him and away from Taylor Walker, he's only going to become more prominent. I like the work that Harry Schoenberg did all over the field. Jake Saligo is definitely continuing his development well. There's so many names that impressed me in this one for the Crows, but the bottom line is I'm starting to think that they're actually in a decent spot in their rebuild. They're winning the games that they should be winning. It was, you know, a bit of a struggle for this one. All of a sudden, they've actually won three in a row. They didn't do that at all last year, and when they did it in 2020, they were already wooden spooners by then. But going into next year, I don't think 2023 is going to be the year that they really make that surge up the ladder, but I'm looking maybe two, three years down the line as a chance for them to really get everything together once this new group matures a little bit. And remember, they still don't have Josh Rochelle as part of this. So what you're saying is, to borrow a term that I've really enjoyed using in sports the last few years, they're a year away from being a year away. Yes, and I didn't want to say that because you had said it on here a number of times, but yeah, the Crows are at least a year away from being a year away, but I can see their direction, and it's a positive direction. 
I mean, North have good things going for them as well. I just think that Adelaide are more versatile in what they're able to do in terms of getting the ball forward. Sam Barry is going to make his tackling an even more important part of their game as well as he continues to grow to think that he's already the leading tackler in the game. When it comes to North, again, I liked what I saw from Callum Coleman Jones, but the young player that I'm really enjoying watching is Paul Curtis, who did get injured late in this game, went to the ground hard, his shoulder may have gotten banged up. Hopefully it doesn't keep him out for the season finale against Gold Coast, but I would understand if they shut him down early as a precautionary measure. I just think he was really stiff that he didn't get selected in the 40-man group for the 22 under 22 selections, though. He should be there the next couple years for sure. To think that he's probably the gem out of this draft at this point for North. Remember, their top pick wasn't there. Ice baths matter, people. Max Holmes should also be 22 under 22. Just wanted to bring that up again. Stats for the Crows. Jordan Dawson, a behind. 33 disposals, 9 marks, 9 score involvements, 830 meters gained. Rory Laird, 2 behinds, 25 disposals, 10 score involvements. Brody Smith, 3 behinds, 19 disposals, 605 meters gained. Taylor Walker kicked 3 goals on 16 disposals. Sam Barry, a behind, 15 disposals and 11 tackles. Again, Fogarty kicking 4-1, becoming more of the focus for the Crows attack has allowed Walker to do more setup work, and he's still damn good at that. You know, none of the younger players who I talked of earlier, other than Fogarty, had big stat hauls, but just by watching them, I was impressed with their game. I'm looking forward to their continued development there. Chase Jones, Ned McHenry among that group as well. It's a very young list in general, and I'm excited to see how Matthew Dix and staff are able to continue cultivating their talent. For North Melbourne, Luke Davies-Uniac with another monster game, a goal from 37 disposals, 11 clearances, 8 of which were center clearances, that's obscene, and 742 meters gained. Jai Simpkin, solid again, ought to be their next captain, 30 touches, 10 clearances, 7 tackles. Ben Mackay had 9 intercepts before he had to head off to the G and play Melbourne. And then Aaron Hall, I mean, I'm so infuriated by his play as of late. Once again, I mean, yeah, he had a goal recently, but he gets the big stats. He's a fantasy freak, a behind 28 disposals, 850 meters, but the man does not know how to be a back at AFL level. He just tries low percentage kicks too often. He's so, he's just thinking, get the ball straight forward as soon as possible when so many better angles can open up to the sides where some of his other backs are. And he's just kind of short-sighted in that way. And so even when he puts up these big stats, a lot of them are meaningless. I will note that Luke Davies-Uniac was kept quiet in the fourth quarter, but the other big thing out of north of this one is that they had a whole bunch of injuries. Jack Zebel hurt his shoulder in a collision with Jordan Dawson early in the third quarter. I thought Dawson was going to be an injury concern as well, but he wasn't. Zebel was subbed out for Hugh Greenwood not all that long after then Jed Anderson got Nick Murray's knee to his cheekbone, ended up concussed. Jaden Stevenson spent the latter part of the third quarter on the bench and was out after that. So North were down two rotations for much of the fourth quarter. And then when Curtis was officially done in the end, they were down to one healthy interchange for the final few minutes. It is sort of a what if game for North then, you know, what if they were able to 
keep more guys away from injury in this one. I still think the Crows would have won, but it definitely could have been closer. Well, Ethan, I can definitely say that the Cats game was a palate cleanser for you in multiple ways after that Dogs-Giants mess of a game that you watched. I was excited for this one because I thought that the Suns were going to be able to keep it decently close for a portion of the game. I thought the Cats were not going to come out and play 100%, but they certainly did. And I also just remembered, wait a minute, the Suns play absolutely fucking terrible first quarters. Why would I think they would ever have a shot at making anything competitive? Not to mention their boatload of defensive injuries. This was hardly a game. This was like the first time all year I've been like, wow, I could just fall asleep and not worry about how this game ends. I didn't. I stayed awake through it all mostly because I had a big game to watch afterwards. But there were a couple of moments where I was like half out of it towards the end, which is a great problem to have. And what's so cool about this right now, we've talked about the depth of this team, but the amount of individual performers that are stepping up, nobody's having a monster individual game, but a lot of guys are having good games. This game was over very quickly. Back-to-back goals by... Tom Hawkins and Tyson Stengel made it a 32-point lead in the first quarter. The Suns did get the next goal and then played fly away, which usually you play that in a better situation for your team, but the Cats were flying away from them. It was 77-26 to at halftime after a Brian Myers goal. More on his performance in a minute. The Suns did get the first three of the third quarter, which was like the lone good contribution Jack Lukosius had all night. He was pretty miserable overall. But the Cats were able to get a bunch of forward time immediately after, even though they never got a goal out of it. Eventually, Myers intercepted an Elijah Holland's handball to get his second. The lead was 55 after three, and the Cats went on to win by 60. Gold Coast 9-5-59, defeated by Geelong 18-11-119. That effectively locked up the minor premiership. It became official Sunday afternoon slash evening, but great job avoiding a trap game, just coming out, determined. We've got shit to do. Got it done. Left no doubt. Reese Stanley did leave with an adductor injury. Should be good to go for finals, though he won't play against the Eagles. And we just learned during this recording that Jeremy Cameron will miss the Eagles game this coming week with a minor hamstring strain which wouldn't be a huge concern, except it's the same right hamstring that he injured three times last year. According to Harry Taylor, scans revealed low fluid levels, which are consistent with a low-grade strain. He played well, so it can't have impacted him too much. This really does sound like one of those things where they're playing it safe, and ideally, you have him play just once in a four-week stretch, because not going to play against the Eagles, then you've got the pre-finals by... Then ideally you win the qualifying final and the next week you get to rest again. So good time for this to happen. If there was a good time, I would think if they were in, say, Carlton's situation or the Bulldog situation, they do everything they could to try to get him to play this coming week. But as I've said, it's nice to be sitting up above high on the throne, watching the peasants fight for the scraps. And I will say again, wait until the end of September to really say things about the peasants. Well, so long as they don't lose to one of the teams that hasn't secured a finals berth yet, I don't think I'd have to worry about that too much, though there is a reality in which they could end up facing whoever ends up with that number eight spot. Hopefully that reality doesn't come into existence. Benjamin, I know you watched this game some. 
since it was the only one on for most of the time. Was there anything you saw that stood out at all? It was just the mass of players that were showing up well for Geelong. Their depth has been something that we've both highlighted throughout this year and something that we really come to know these past three years. It was great seeing Brandon DeParfit have time in the 22 again, and he got a pair of goals. Normally, I would be concerned about ruck contests once Reese Stanley went down, but then I remembered Mark Blitzovs exists, and he used to do steeplechase. So, of course, he has the skill set for that, too. Mark Blitzovs was everywhere in this game. He was awesome once again. Remember, he underperformed in 2021. He's not just at his 2020 form, he's exceeding it. You know who is in his 2021 form is Jed Buse, and that's a good thing because he's been so fundamentally solid and reliable. His presence and his composure allows other defenders to get out and make more aggressive plays and allows things like for Jack Henry to go forward to for Tom Stewart to be able to go after marking contests. And, you know, he's not the sort of player that you'd notice if this isn't a team you watch all the time, but he does his part and he opens up so much for everyone else and... This was probably Ryan Meyer's best overall game of the year. So without further ado, I'm going to give you the stats for Geelong for this one. Cam Guthrie, a goal on 30 disposals. He also had seven marks. Brandon Parfit, two goals, 28 disposals. Mark Blitzovs, two goals, 27 disposals. Patrick Dangerfield, 24 disposals, nine score involvement, seven clearances. Jeremy Cameron, three goals, three behinds, 21 disposals, eight marks, 474 meters gained. Again, he's not just taking marks in the forward 50 and kicking. He's an all-around player. And if he wasn't such a good kick for goal, I think he'd find a way to be a superstar elsewhere on the ground. Ryan Myers, two goals, 21 disposals, seven marks, seven score involvements, 432 meters gained. That's the sort of performance that might be able to help him cement his spot in the 22, even with a mostly healthy team. Tom Stewart, looking like he's getting back into form. 21 disposals, 12 intercepts, 502 meters gained. Max Holmes, who, again, how is this guy not a 22 under 22 nominee? Two goals, a behind, 20 disposals, 8 intercepts, 545 meters gained. And Tom Atkins, a behind, 15 disposals, and just another 9 tackles for him. Pretty standard. As Andrew Gaze would say, pretty standard stuff. And also, Tyson Stengel's three-goal first quarter ought to have wrapped up a spot in the All-Australian team for him. He doesn't get in, we riot. We will fly to Melbourne and riot. Gold Coast stats of note, Tuke Miller with another monster game, because that's what he does. 36 disposals, 8 marks, 734 meters. He's a joint favorite at this point for the Brownlow, along with Andrew Brayshaw, and I'd love to see him win it. Brandon Ellis with 32 disposals, gaining 552 meters. Noah Anderson with a goal from 26 disposals. I know we were talking so much about Matt Rowell at the start of the year, but it's Anderson who's impressed us way more with his capabilities running through the middle and kicking for a goal. Obviously, that Richmond after the siren kick sticks out in our minds, but just a lot of other smaller things he did were good as well. However, as a whole, Gold Coast had a lot of problems converting on the chances that they did get because they were just 38.1% on their disposal efficiency inside 50 Yet another Cats opponent unable to crack 40% efficiency inside 50. That's been consistent with how good this Geelong defense has been. It's been a lot more the defense is doing than the opponent's ineptitude. Also, I didn't notice Mavi Orchol 
all game. It was a mix of Stewart, DeConing, and Jack Henry all playing well against him. It was one of Jack Henry's best defensive matchups against a bigger, more physical guy that usually is a bad situation for him. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thanks to Anchor by Spotify and all the other platforms which host this podcast. Be sure to follow us if you aren't already to know when our episodes release. You can also support us in this endeavor. There's a link at the bottom of our episode description. Follow us on Twitter at Americans Footy to get our live thoughts on anything and everything AFL. It's going to be interesting going back and looking at our real-time thoughts on what the hell is going to end up happening with Essendon and what already did as well. My personal Twitter is at BenjaminHK01. I'll probably mostly have music thoughts there and maybe some hockey as well when that picks up. My personal Twitter is at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. And Brian Harambe is on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. Because Ethan was away, Brian Harambe watched Brian Myers with me this weekend. Saturday night was a really fun conclusion to the evening, or since I'm in the Eastern time zone, start to the morning. I gotta say, it is a bitch trying to stay up through a full Saturday of games on the East Coast. Any of you who do it, I have so much respect for you. Shout out to Craig Wessels, a yank on the footy, for being one of those. It's now the third time I've done it this year, and that's uh, three times more than I should. Anyway, we had two compelling games for completely different reasons. The Western Derby and the game that I watched between Melbourne and Carlton. I mean, of course, I watched it too, because... How could you not? As an Eagles fan, I was, you know, tuned into the Western Derby, but Melbourne and Carlton was the game that everyone had to have been watching still. I mean, even in the West, I imagine people were still looking for updates from it. Another tremendous back and forth game capped off by one of the most exciting finishes this year in a season where we've had three matches decided by goals after the siren and a tie decided by playing on after the siren. This might have actually been the most entertaining way to end a game yet because the winning goal was scored with 11 seconds left and it wasn't off a set shot. So it kind of came out of nowhere, whereas, you know, a goal after the siren, you can kind of see the build up to it. The drama is great. The scenes afterwards are incredible. But at the same time, this was just kind of out of nowhere. Specifically, Kazi Pickett scoring the winner. Jaden Hunt sent a kick into the forward 50 that Jake Melksham wasn't able to mark, but he was able to handball it That accounted for the 10th and final lead change, and as I had hoped, means everything is on the line this coming week as Carlton faces off with Collingwood at the MCG. This is going to be one of the biggest home and away games in years, maybe ever, with Collingwood going for a top four spot and Carlton likely playing for a final spot unless the Bulldogs ruin everything by losing to Hawthorne. Again, 10 lead changes, so much back and forth. Neither team led this game by more than 11 
It was tight the entire way, though it did seem like through a couple of swings in the third and fourth that Carlton was going to win this game. After the D's had taken their largest lead on Jake Melksham's third goal, the Blues responded with three straight goals from Harry Mackay, who at that point had arrived after playing a game in Adelaide and had gotten up to speed. Corey Durden scoring after a Matthew Owies smother of a Stephen May clearance attempt. And then Jack Martin scoring off of a Matthew Cottrell centering kick. Then the lead kept going back and forth. I know the Blues fans were upset about officiating for this game. Free kicks ended up 23-13 to in Melbourne's favor, but there was a really bad call that wiped out what would have been Jake Melksham's fourth goal, where Ben Brown was ruled out of bounds. Sure looked like he had stayed in, or kept the ball in at least. Okay, but ball don't lie. Melbourne scored the next goal, thanks to Christian Petraka. Lead kept going back and forth. I thought it was an iffy free for Jack Martin that put the Blues up 56-54. Bailey Fritch had a nice little tip to Ed Langdon, put Melbourne back in front. Jack Martin responded. Then the Blues had a couple chances to take what would have been a big lead in this game, but Corey Durden had a miss that kept the lead at six. Then Viney found Ben Brown in the crowd with about seven minutes left to cut the lead to one. That lead went back up to eight when Charlie Kernow scored off of a Corey Durden setup with 3.01 left, and yet the D's still found a way. Max Gon found Melksham in a triple team to set up his fourth and final goal. That was with a minute 56 left, cut the lead to 74-73. The Blues had some space on the left wing with about a minute left, but Adam Saad ended up turning it over. Hunt's kick into the forward 50. Melksham set up Pickett. Five-point lead with 11 seconds left, and the Blues did have a kick into the edge of the 50, but Christian Salem got two fists on it, and that was it. The Demons remain in a four-way tie among teams with 15-6 and records, all jostling for a spot in the top four. At the moment, they sit in third, just .6 percentage points behind the Swans. Once again, they go to the Gabba to finish off the home-and-away season. That's the Friday night game. And Carlton, as we said, they do have a four-point lead over the Bulldogs, but they lead them by just nine-tenths of a percentage point. If the Bulldogs beat Hawthorne, most scenarios would then require the Blues to beat Collingwood, or at least tie. The reality in which the Bulldogs win, the Blues lose, and the Blues still make finals would require both games to be really, really close, which could happen, but not entirely likely. I was so impressed by Jaden Hunt late in this game. He stepped up big time. He was propelling Melbourne forward from the halfback throughout those final five minutes or so. Without his work there, Melbourne don't get the forward chances that they do. And I have been waiting to say this for so long. Without Jake Melksham, Melbourne lose. Take that one to the jaw, Stephen May. That said, May played really well. This was one of the first times all year the Demons had both a healthy Christian Salem and a healthy Stephen May, both up to speed. It makes their defense really strong. I know you are also impressed with Harrison Petty. Yeah, I think his one-on-one work on Charlie Kernow may go less noticed for this. Kernow still did beat him a couple times because, of course, he will. There's a reason he's leading the Coleman race. But he kept Kernow out of that middle section of the 50, those middle 30 degrees or so where he tends to do his best work. Had Carlton won, the two really big heroes would have been Matthew Cottrell, who had one percenters all over the ground and matched up well with Ed Langdon for most of the game, and Adam Saad, who was just all over the place. 
not just being used to move the ball out of the back end and not just randomly bouncing it. He played forward when he needed to. He was involved in marking contests. He was more versatile than I've ever seen him. And despite the outcome, that's a really, really good sign for Carlton. They found ways to utilize him we had never seen before. The thing that's going to stick with me about Saad from this game, though, is his long kick that ended up spilling to Melbourne around halfback that ended up getting them that last chance instead of going for a more sure thing. I was really confused by Carlton's movement at the very end. They had marks and space on the left wing with a bit over a minute to go. was surprised that they were so willing to concede ground from those first couple kicks there. And then Saad's kick just kind of looked indiscriminate at the end. Looking at more of a liability, though, in terms of one player for Carlton, I was not impressed with what Jack Noons did at all. He did not have good hands in this game and dropped a couple marks that could have really steadied things for Carlton multiple times. In the end, though, the Demons win this one. It wasn't their prettiest performance. They definitely aren't playing with the level of synchronicity they had last year, but they needed to show that they could gut a game out like this. They played a decent, not great game against a finals caliber opponent. And after the loss to Collingwood, for them to win such a tight game instead of just their usual methodical kick your ass up and down the field type of win, I think it's more significant and more impactful than it would have been had they just blown them out, even as nice as it would have been to have the percentage off of that. For the victorious Demons, who of course will have everything to play for again next round, Angus Brayshaw led the way statistically, and in a lot of ways in general on the field, 38 disposals, 12 clearances, 572 meters gained. Not necessarily his cleanest game, but a very active game in which he was deployed in pretty much every role possible in the middle, kind of 70% of the oval, and filled all of those spots well as he was called on. Clayton Oliver, 29 disposals and 9 tackles. Jack Viney with 26. Stephen May, 25. 10 intercepts, gained 736 meters. Christian Salem, 22 disposals, 8 marks, 7 intercepts, and 6 tackles. A quieter game from Jake Lever, but Salem's impact definitely made that less noticeable. Just such amazing depth they have in all spots, and Salem being healthy just takes them to an even greater level in the back line. Max gone, kicking 1-1 from 20 disposals. His goal kick has not been the greatest, but the one he got was significant. And his work off-ruck contests allowed for some good things for Melbourne as well. Mark Pittnett is good in that contest immediately, doesn't do nearly as much off of those as Max Gaughan does. And then there's, you know, Gaughan's general impact all over the field as well. But in terms of scoring, Jake Melksham was the one that kept Melbourne in it the whole way, kicking 4-2. Seven marks, 10 score involvements, and that last score involvement was the handball assist off the ground, scrambling it out to causing Pickett to allow him to get that kick away on the right boot as he was falling down. On the Carlton side, Sam Doherty, 28 disposals and an octopus. Sam Walsh, his 50th straight game with 20-plus disposals, 27 of them this time to be exact. Patrick Cripps, good thing they had him out there. 26 disposals, 12 tackles, 10 clearances. Will Setterfield, a late in for Adam Chera. He finished with 26 disposals and 525 meters gained. Adam Saad, 22 disposals, 592 meters gained. Lewis Young, one of his better games, certainly. 18 disposals, 12 intercepts, and 9 marks. And unlike in a lot of past games, didn't really get overwhelmed in some one-on-one marking contests. Jack Silvani kicked just 1-3, but did it from tough angles. 
finished with 16 disposals, seven clearances, and seven tackles. He certainly reasserted himself into the side. Harry, who might also be Ben Mackay, three goals in the behind on seven marks. It was revealed following the game that Matthew Kennedy, who hasn't played in Carlton's last two games, will not play again this season. He has a Lisfranc fracture in his foot. I mean, that's where you'd have a Lisfranc fracture. So both teams of this game are dealing with one now because, of course, Tom McDonald had one much earlier on in the season. Because I was so captivated by this game, plus I didn't have a ton of energy at this point, I was pretty tired. I didn't pay tremendously close attention to the Western Derby, but I kept my eye on it. It was competitive for a while. I'd say competitive for, what, two and a half quarters? Would that be fair? Two and a half quarters seems about right, even though on the scoreboard it was competitive for a lot longer. Rio won a game in bad conditions, but did not kick well at all. But this was also a game that I was super entertained by because unlike the first Western Derby this year, which just felt flat and lifeless, this felt like a rivalry. They were fighting early on. At one point, Caleb Saron got called for 150 meters worth of penalties. It was either for two punches and a kick or just three punches. I had never seen anything like that. And considering he didn't have an MRO case to answer to, maybe it wasn't all that big of a deal. And maybe it shouldn't have been called, but as an Eagles fan, I ate it up and Jack Redden kicked that goal. But this was just, this was what you want out of a rivalry. Even if one of the teams sucks, you want it to be, you know, ah, you can throw out the records. Ultimately, the better team won and did so in somewhat convincing fashion. But there was energy, there was emotion. And you can't say we had that when these teams first met. They were passionate about the game, though. They cared. And look, I bet the Lord Mayor gobbled it up because you know how much he loves things about, you know, exchanging energy, that sorts of things. Both teams definitely engaged with their minds and their hearts. Thanks, Bezel. You know, that whole throw the records out thing, it's something that I've always hated hearing, but I've realized how much it can be true in a lot of sports. And I'm glad it was true here for Western Derby 55. Honestly, the game went mostly how I expected with the Eagles having a good first quarter and not being able to live up to it for the rest of the game. In fact, the Eagles could not match their first quarter score the rest of the way. They kicked four straight in the first and managed three, five the rest of the way. Fremantle seemed to take control a little bit before halftime and then really asserted themselves in the third quarter. Sean Darcy won a whole bunch of ruck contests and they were meaningful because they got into advantage. Darcy ending up with 56 hitouts, add on his goal and other contributions, and it made sense why he ended up winning the Glendinning Allen medal as the best player aground. Fremantle cost themselves an easy fourth quarter by kicking 2-8 in the third, but the result wasn't ever really in doubt. Even as the rain picked up again, you know, it wasn't the cleanest game by any means. Again, it was played in relatively wet conditions at the start of it, and then from the late third quarter onward, but Fremantle did end up getting the cleaner possessions. They were far more efficient in terms of actually making their entries count. I mean, it's hard not to be when West Coast were just 29.5% on disposal efficiency inside 50. Fremantle just above their average at 49.1. One thing I did definitely tune into this game was why Fremantle are going to be missing David Mundy so much because he was the game clearance leader with eight and he started a bunch of their best passages that way 
and perhaps the cleanest handler of the ball, both in live play and also just when he had to go to the ground to get the Sharon out of congested areas. Tom Barris and Shannon Hearn did a lot to save the Eagles from scoreboard embarrassment, and Xavier O'Neal was the Eagles' other highlight. And as he's one of their younger guys out there, hopefully it can stay that way. I'm just not sure how much else I can really take from this game because of the low level of competition in West Coast, even though it was a Western Derby, because of the wet conditions. I mean, I guess I can take away Blake Aker's impact as a ground gator, kind of in halfback in midfield. I liked what he did. But other than kind of understanding where Mundy impacts the game most, I don't really have any real new thoughts on either of these teams from this one. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just is how the Western Derby unfolded. Fremantle 9-17-71 defeated West Coast 7-5-47, the final scoreline. This might have been the best game Akers played since their win at Geelong. He had a goal, two behinds, 29 disposals, and gained 567 meters. Will Brody, 28 disposals, 7 clearances. David Mundy, who got a really cool moment. Fans gave an ovation to him at the 16-minute mark in the first quarter, which actually coincided with the end of a pretty significant fight. You know, the kind of like minutes applause at a certain time on the clock, kind of a soccer thing. I thought it was a cool thing to bring over. Monday finished with a behind on 25 disposals. He had eight clearances. Caleb Sarong, a rip jumper, 150 meters in penalties, a goal, a behind, 25 disposals and seven marks. And Sean Darcy, a goal and two behinds on 56 hitouts. Hitouts for the game were 62 to 28. Darcy's going to need to keep playing really strongly for them to go far between Rory Lobb's shoulder, keeping him for ruck duty and the value that Griffin Logue has elsewhere. And also just the difficulty in squeezing Lloyd Meek into this team. They weren't able to get him into this one, even with Matt Tabater out. Hell, Bailey Banfield was still the sub. Eagles stats of note, Liam Duggan a behind, 30 disposals, 10 marks, gained 791 meters. Shannon Hearn, whose nickname Bunga is awesome. Apparently, Bunga's been a nickname in the Hearn family for three generations. 28 disposals and 661 meters gained. Tom Barris, 20 disposals and 12 marks. Xavier O'Neal, a goal, 19 disposals and 11 tackles. I was really hoping that Greg Clark would have gotten a shot outside of the metal, the medical sub role. Didn't happen. No Isaiah Winder either. Perhaps I'm a little bit higher on him than other people, but I was hoping that the younger players would have gotten a shot in this game. Maybe we can see a couple more of them this next round at Geelong. Would love to see them get some AFL experience. But at this point, I doubt that Adam Simpson's going to pull the plug on any of his veterans early. Sunday began with a game that I had been hyping up a lot during the week. I hyped it up to myself. I hyped it up to Ethan in our round 22 preview. You said you were really excited to watch this one. And if you were excited to watch it the whole way through, you were most certainly a Tigers fan because Richmond absolutely pounded Hawthorne. We're close to doubling him up. 28-128 to the Hawks, 9-13-67. Bottom line, James Sicily should have been on Tom Lynch from the beginning. He wasn't. James Blank and Emerson Jekka drew the assignment early on, and Lynch kicked four goals in the first quarter, and then had another four in the third quarter. You know, I've talked a lot about how great a job Sam Mitchell has done this year. This was probably... One of the only times all year, maybe the first time I've questioned his game plan. 
Sicily ended up having big numbers in the middle of the field, but you know, you've got limited chips to work with here and you got to figure out how to use them. It's kind of like playing chess and you only have one queen to utilize. Um, there's actually John Boys, a pretty fun American sports media guy. If you've ever seen him, I like to call him my favorite communist. Did a thing a few years ago about the Cleveland Browns having this problem with Terrell Pryor, where it's like he's probably their best wide receiver, but he's also probably their best quarterback. And it's not like he can throw to himself. Also, Finn McGinnis was on Shea Bolton and did a nice job on him, but seemed like he was probably needed more against Dion Prestia. That at least is more defensible than what went on with Sicily. Maybe the idea for Mitchell was just, you know what? Let's see what these young guys have. Let's see if they can rise up to the challenge. And I think the answer pretty clearly was no, they cannot match up with Tom Lynch. Yeah, pretty clear. No, they're not ready for it yet. I get the learning experience side of it. You're at the end of the season. You are well out of the finals race. You're looking toward the future. A loss isn't necessarily bad for you at this point if you're looking at getting a better draft selection. At the same time, I really thought Hawthorne would have maybe wanted to play spoiler against Richmond. I do understand the beginner's tag against Shea Bolton with full ground impact he has, but at least on stoppages, I would have definitely liked to have seen more attention directly on Dion Prestia because his clearance work set up so much for Richmond once again. The other big takeaway I have from this game is that Morris Rioli Jr. should never be in the twos again. He had eight score involvements from his first eight touches and had nine for the game. He is able to create from pretty much anywhere on the ground. He did a lot, again, creating points from turnovers, which he does literally like nobody else, despite having only played 13 games and for three of those, he was the sub. He's 113 points that he's helped create from turnovers he's forced is tops in the AFL. Richmond in general have been able to punish turnovers really well this year, especially in the forward half. That's part of their brand, and Morris may exemplify that better than anyone. Other notable stats for Richmond outside of the insane work that Morris Jr. already does, Dion Prestia and Trent Cotchin both had 30 disposals. Prestia with two goals and 11 clearances as part of his day as well. Trent Cotchin had a goal, nine score involvements, and eight clearances. And I'm not sure, you know, if having Prestia being tagged more would have meant that Cotchin would have gotten even more stats, or if he could have just been limited because he would have had to expend his energy more, you know. He's by no means young at this point, and I would have loved to have seen him be forced to take that main role out of stoppages. Maybe Essendon could try to press that issue next round because it looks like Dustin Martin could be back in the first week of finals. Richmond clearly not missing him, though, for this one. Jaded short up behind, 26 disposals, 10 score involvements, gained 535 meters. Nick Flossstone, we thought initially he might not be in, but clearly his ribs are all right. 23 disposals, 9 marks at 497 meters. And of course, Tom Lynch, 8 goals straight from 18 disposals and 12 marks. And you know, he's also a lot more than just a pure kick because of what he does as kind of a center half wing player as well. I think that's an underrated part of his game. Richmond also made their entries count, 52.7% efficiency there. Between that, being plus 12 in clearances, and doing more of the little things, plus 27 in one percenters, it all makes sense why this game fit together for them so perfectly. Notable stats for Hawthorne, Tom Mitchell with another 32 disposals, James Sicily put up great numbers, just wasn't 
in the right spot, considering how the rest of the team performed. He had a goal on 30 disposals, nine marks, and 715 meters gained. Jai Newcomb, 29 disposals. In his penultimate game, big boy McAvoy, a goal, 13 disposals, and eight tackles. And Jack Scrimshaw, 11 intercepts. Ah, brave men all. Lost sons of New Bedford. That's good Scrimshaw. Was really happy to see McAvoy get a goal in his last game in Victoria. Of course, Hawthorne will be closing out the season once again in Launceston. And then was also happy to see Jai Sarong get his first AFL goal. An interesting week between what he accomplished and what Caleb did the day before. I think Caleb definitely grabbed more of the headlines, though. Also, Richmond and Hawthorne outdrew Melbourne and Carlton. Did not see that coming, even with how strong the Richmond membership base is. Melbourne and Carlton drew 55,705, not bad, but Richmond and Hawthorne, 59,338 for an early Sunday afternoon game, and on a day where a lot of community and youth footy had their grand finals too. But crowds of close to 60,000 are no big deal at the G. Crowds of nearly 45,000 are a big deal in Sydney, and 44,659 constituted their biggest home and away crowd in a quarter century. How much of that was assisted by Collingwood fans? I'm not entirely sure, but it was very much still a red and white stadium. And the result, surprisingly for me, was the same. Collingwood's streak has ended at 11 wins. Sydney 11-11-77, defeating the Pies 7-8-50. I think in a lot of ways, though, this game was kind of a testament to what Collingwood had accomplished over this stretch because of what it took from the Swans to win this game and put them into submission because there were a lot of occasions where Sydney should have really run away with this game. They led by 20 in the second quarter, 15 at halftime, 33 in the third. And yet it felt for a while like Collingwood was going to be able to get back into this thing. They got it down to 22 but the Swans did an awesome job withstanding Collingwood's pressure throughout the fourth quarter. It also just felt like they had the ball almost the entire time, too. Whenever Collingwood managed to wrestle the ball away from Sydney, they tried, you know, the quick passages they tended to do, but the Swans got on them very quickly. The McCartan brothers were solid in their backline work, and Sydney just slowly built up the field, not like you would typically see them doing, but they had to really adjust their style in order to keep Collingwood out of the game. And yeah, that's definitely a testament to what the Pies have accomplished. I thought Will Hayward was awesome. One of the more unheralded pieces of Sydney's really talented forward group. Sam Reed was outstanding, not just in the forward 50, but kind of in that area, kind of the edge of the 50 combined with the edge of the center square. He took a couple of really big marks there. Ryan Clark did awesome work on Nick Dacos. The Swans forwards as a whole were really able to outmark and outmuscle Jeremy Howe and John Noble. And the biggest thing to me was just how well Sydney handled the Collingwood pressure in the fourth quarter. Anytime the Pies had forward time, they were able to prevent them from getting good scoring opportunities out of it. And it's such a stark contrast from how Brisbane have collapsed under pressure like that. I think if Collingwood was to get in, you know, a 30 point hole against the Lions and put themselves in that spot, they would have been able to pull it off. Whereas the Swans have a level of composure about them right now that allows them to handle a really difficult situation like that. 
Sydney did a lot of good one-on-one -on -one work, but they weren't locked to it in any way. And I think that willingness to be flexible defensively does come from the back with what the interceptors can do there, how they can both do well in one-on-one -on -one work and in zones. Their fluidity throughout the game meant that they were able to match up well against whatever adjustments Collingwood tried to make. Yes, but they were also able to switch and adapt and space themselves when needed. I was a bit worried in the middle of the second quarter for Sydney because they had tried to kick to Buddy Franklin in badly outnumbered packs twice in a row, and at that point, it was just around two and a half goals, the margin, but they distributed well from that point forward, and Buddy did end up getting another goal as well. I actually love the play where he got his third goal, number 1,043 for his career, just because of the one-handed pickup and how he kind of slammed it on his boot as Jeremy Howe tried to tackle him. I would have made that a goal of the week nominee. I thought it was a really neat play. Anytime you can kick a goal while a defender is draped all over you, I'm impressed. And I'm just left impressed that Sydney so clearly won this game. I mean, I didn't doubt their abilities. I was just surprised that Collingwood weren't able to mount that last push. Their kicking accuracy didn't do themselves any favors, but Sydney just answered their style. It's not like Collingwood played that bad a game. They struggled some defensively. Sounded like the flu was going around the club. Jordan Degoe was laid out. And remember, they are also missing Taylor Adams through the rest of the home and away season as well. But still, considering the personnel they had, they still played a decent game. They did a lot of the same things that they've been able to do throughout their winning streak. And the Swans were just able to respond to it instead of simply catch Collingwood at the right time. Callum Mills behind, 29 disposals, 9 marks, 7 tackles, 535 meters gained. Luke Parker, 26 disposals, 8 clearances, 8 tackles. Chad Warner behind, 25 disposals, 555 meters gained. James Rowe bottom a goal, 24 disposals, 8 tackles, 7 clearances, 497 meters gained. I can and will continue. Robbie Fox, 19 disposals and 10 marks. Jake Lloyd, 18. I'm actually going to stop you there because... Robbie Fox is not someone that we had thought about at all in terms of where the Swans were finding success from 2021. A 29-year-old who's still on their rookie list, but has stood up and made his presence felt in a very crowded defense as of late. That's the kind of grinded out player that you're going to need if you're pushing for a flag. Jake Lloyd, 18 disposals and 8 tackles. Isaac Heaney, 2 goals, 3 behind, 17 disposals, 10 score involvements. And Patty McCartan, nine intercepts, as he so frequently does. Both Patty and Tom did some really good intercepting work. Dane Rampy with a couple nice plays on the ground on both ends of the field, in fact. Early on, he actually scored a goal, his first goal since 2016 and just the seventh of his career. And then in the fourth quarter, he chased down Brody Majacek after Majacek leaked out behind the defense and stopped a surefire goal. And then Buddy's goal, where he slammed the ball on the boot, as I mentioned just a minute ago, made it a 12-point turnaround, and that was the dagger. Notable statistical performers for Collingwood, Scott Pendlebury, 26 disposals, 8 clearances, and 480 meters gained. Josh Dacos kicking 1-1, 25 disposals, 7 clearances, 489 meters. John Noble, 20 disposals, 512 meters gained, nonetheless was definitely outplayed. You know, good stats don't mean you necessarily have a positive impact on the game. <clears throat> Brandon Maynard, more positive though. 18 disposals at 541 meters. 
and Nathan Murphy with 10 intercepts. Collingwood's streak coincided with Murphy's return and reemergence, you know, taking some of the weight off Darcy Moore. Team stats of note, Sydney, 47.3% disposal efficiency inside 50. They limited Collingwood to 308 That's outstanding. And stoppage clearances, plus 15 for the Swans, 39 to 24. That was where James Robottom's impact was felt more than anywhere else. And he's that sort of scrappy energizer as well on top of that. So a complete spark plug for the Swans. One of many. Well, we let off the episode talking about Essendon with a slight hint of Port Adelaide. And we're going to end this episode with the game those two played at Marvel Stadium. And my goodness, did this game get out of hand quickly. It looked like it could have been, you know, interesting back and forth affair. Teams being somewhat even in clearances early, Port kicking more accurately. Essendon definitely did squander some chances in the first. Port led by 8 after 1, and then by 51 at the half, as they scored 7 goals, 2 in the second quarter, to a single point for Essendon. It was a 57-point run spanning from the end of the first quarter to just before halftime. Sucked all the energy out of Marvel Stadium. Hardly anyone was left by the end of this one. I guess Massimo D'Ambrosio's first two AFL goals coming in quick succession didn't stay in their mind for too long with all the troubles that Essendon had all over the rest of the field. Port with solid performances all over the place. Jeremy Finlayson continues to impress me. Ever since his early season omissions, he's definitely turned it on in multiple ways. You know, he's not a traditional ruckman, but because of his speed and his agility, He's able to get to the ball out of those contests quickly, so Port can get absolutely throttled in hitouts, as in 50-9 to nine throttled, and yet make up most of the ground in clearances, just 37-28 to 28 for Essendon there. I've been critical of a lot of Port Adelaide's coaching this year, but that they've learned how to handle themselves in the center circle when they can't win a hitout is definitely good innovation by Ken Hinckley and his assistants, and credit should be given there. And of course, they're going to obviously have Ruckman featuring in the future with Bryn Teagle having signed on for another year, Sam Hayes working his way back from injury. But I definitely want to see Finlayson still have some time there in different parts of the ground. Another solid game from the tandem of Connor Rosie and Zach Butters. Imagine what Port could have done had they been running together through half forward for the first part of the season as well. I was so critical of Rosie being placed forward for the first few rounds, and a switch flipped in Port as a whole when he was actually put back in his proper place. It was also really fun watching Sam Powell pepper in this one. He's always a fun watch, but he seemed to be more active in the forward 50 in this game and directly on the ball there than he had been the rest of the season, and it makes sense then that he kicked four goals, the most for him this season. As for Essendon, everything for them comes from their back six. Brandon Zirk-Thatcher has become a really solid interceptor back there. We know the offensive capabilities of a lot of the rest of those guys, Mason Redman, Nick Hind, but if they can't actually defend, none of it matters. And even though Essendon did keep it close in the first quarter, I could tell that they were going to be in a rough day because Jake Stringer missed his first shot. It's a confidence thing for him as well, I think, not unlike Max King. But when he gets off to that good start, Stringer, he's one of the toughest players to stop in the AFL. When he doesn't, 
is usually a liability because he could get pretty volatile as well. He cost his team a downfield free that led to a goal, the first goal of that 57-point run. Notable stats for Port Adelaide. Great game for Dan Houston. Goal, 32 disposals, 13 intercepts, 8 marks, 572 meters gained. Ollie Wines, 31 disposals, 9 intercepts, and 538 meters gained. Connor Rosie, a goal, 2 behinds, 28 disposals. Zach Butters, 3 goals, a behind, 25 disposals, 10 score involvements. Jeremy Finlayson, 2 goals, 25 disposals, 10 score involvements, 616 meters gained. You know, in our notes, I have it written as Finlayson 2.0, and I think that's actually pretty accurate with the way he's reinvented himself this year to refer to him as Finlayson 2.0. Sam Powell Pepper, four goals straight on 22 disposals. Aaliyah Aaliyah, nine intercepts, and the power as a team, 54.1% efficiency inside 50. Aaliyah did an excellent job on Peter Wright. The one time Wright got a goal, it was because Tom Jonas had deliberately taken the ball out of bounds, so Aaliyah completely held Wright at bay, and we haven't seen anybody do that all year. We knew from his time at Sydney that he was a good interceptor. He's really developed in his general one-on-one play outside of those direct marking contests in his two years at Port. Notable stat lines for Essendon, Jordan Ridley, 30 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 9 marks. Darcy Parrish, a goal on 29 disposals. Dylan Scheel had 27 disposals at an octopus, but weirdly, no marks. For Graff, 26 disposals, Jane Laverty, 20 and 10 marks. It's a shame that the round ended on such a dull note like that, but maybe it kind of sums things up because of how unclean a lot of that game was, especially from Essendon's end. I saw one tweet that said that if you want to remember what pandemic footy was like, watch that fourth quarter of Essendon and Port. Usually didn't have that much scoring, though. I was going to say Port scored 7-2 in both the second and fourth quarters, but I can understand why someone could draw the comparison nonetheless. Let's finish this round recap like we do all of our round recaps by looking at the Mark and Goal of the Week nominees. The winner for round 21 for Mark of the Week was Connor Rosie, marking over Daniel Rioli, getting good height on him, one of those knee-to-the-back-of-the-neck marks. And we have one of those in this week's selection as well, that being Luke Jackson over Sam Walsh, good height for a big guy on that one. You also have Jeremy Howe jumping from the side into a four-man pack, to mark between his two Darcy teammates, Moore and Cameron, perhaps Howe's only noticeable positive moment in that game. And then Dane Zorko had a hanger over Jack Steele in the Friday Nighter, took a one-handed mark almost parallel to the ground as he falls down. And I think that might be my winner for this round. What about you, Ethan? I think I've got to go Zorko as well. All three are pretty good. I did notice, though, watching Jackson, his legs are like tree trunks. My God, ridiculously muscular. Makes sense why he's able to get the good vertical that he does. He also just has, regardless of muscle, just very large legs. Goal of the week. Last week's winner was Corey Durden, which I think they got correct. He picked up a Tom DeConing crumb and kicked from the left boundary. Your three nominees this round. The game winner for Kazi Pickett, where he picked up a scrambled Jake Melksham handball, went around the corner on his right as he fell down. And then you had two from the Cats-Suns game. Isaac Rankin taking a ball deep in the right pocket off a marking contest, spinning between Sam Day and Jed Buse before going check side off his right foot. And Tyson Stengel taking the ball from 
a Tom Hawkins hit out in the right pocket, running towards the boundary and kicking from a 61-degree angle. This one's tough. Benjamin, what do you pick? I'm picking now peroxide-haired Isaac Rankin, who a lot of people said looks like old Brisbane Lion legend Jason Ackermanis with that hair going, and yeah, I see it. Just between the spin and the check side, I find his more impressive than Stengel's. You know, those tight window plays I'm always really amazed by. No slight to Stengel, though, for the effort he had on that one, and I'm pretty sure he kicked it through on the full. He did, looking at it again. Also looking at Stengel's again, you can see a guy in an Oakland A's hat in the front row at Metricon. I'm on the fence here. I'm actually thinking Pickett because he got it out of such a tight window, was kind of sliding and falling as he kicked it. In terms of the kick itself, his may have been the most impressive with the traffic it was in, although Stengel did have the ridiculous angle. I'm going with Rankin because he made the complete play. I will not be bothered if any of these three wins, but I'm going to go with Pickett. Before we close this show out, we do have a couple more developments out of the Essendon-Rutten situation. It sounds like Essendon management did meet with Alistair Clarkson today. So there is reason to think that Rutten may not be around that much longer. The question is just, what's their backup plan? They do seem to think that Clarkson would be quite interested in them, which would also really put North in a crappy spot. I hope he goes back to North and is able to right the ship there. Both of them have really shitty situations that a coach would be getting themselves into with all the questions about club leadership above them. But Essendon's board just seems to be so in flux at the moment that I'm not sure how much a coaching change is going to do for them. And again, I really would have liked to see another year out of truck. What they showed in that first year and the wins that they had been able to get later on in this season before the disappointment this past round had me thinking positively about the Bombers for a decent stretch. Who knows, maybe this news as it evolves will call for an emergency episode. Maybe that, maybe some round 23 list stuff. We will have our round 23 preview for you in just a couple days. And between now and then, and at all times, you can find us reacting in real time on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me personally at Castle Media. You can find me personally at BenjaminHK01. And Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is somewhere in this house, not making noise right now. Maybe he's actually outside the room, just curled up and waiting for me to open the door. He is on Instagram at cat named Brian. Thank you once again for tuning in. Episode 56 will be here as soon as we can get around to it. <laughs>